This episode is brought to you in part by Barton Kane, revolutionizing gouged shaped and profiled bassoon cane with precision, consistency, and love since 2012. Leave the cane processing to us. Free up time to practice, take a romantic dinner cruise, or cuddle on the couch with your cat on a rainy day and listen to Double Read Dish. Enter coupon code Double Read Dish Rocks My World, no spaces, for free shipping on your next Barton Kane order. That's www.bartonkane.com. Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the Double Read community for 70 years. Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de more, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed making accessories, reed cases, and lafrex. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground with a choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckle bassoon vocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to find the perfect heckle vocal for you. For all your double read accessory needs, Nielsen is ready to help you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Happy Halloween, but when people are hearing this, it's actually November 1st. So I'm just now realizing we planned a Halloween themed dish for the day <laughs> after Halloween. It's uh the hangover from spooky season. There you go. I'll take it. It's like it's making up for Christmas creep, how people get mad uh-huh. that like Christmas stuff comes too early. We're, We're doing Halloween hangover. Halloween hangover. There you go. <laughs> Ugh, so what's creeping you out this Halloween? Well, I don't know. I, I've just been getting it. Maybe it's because we're like still locked inside that I'm mm-hmm. super excited to just kind of celebrate and the traditions. And Halloween is actually one that you can kind of still enjoy in the pandemic. Like you can't mm-hmm. be trick-or-treating and handing out candy, touching hands and stuff. But we're going to put a bowl of candy out on our porch and just be like, honor system, take. So the first kid, the first teenager who stumbled along. the whole bowl. <laughs> that's fine what have you and buddy gone as in the past uh well last year was maybe my proudest moment we went as a pink lady and t-bird from greece and had matching jackets (laughs) does buddy do well with the costumes he tolerates it for me (laughs) and so does my poor husband who i don't even want to tell you what a mock leather jacket with having paid for the t-bird copyright costs for a dog but it was worth every penny let's put it that way you're like this is a necessary expense this goes in the need category in the budget this is not a want absolutely and my pink lady jacket i'm tempted to wear it 365 just to get that mojo so. <laughs> Do you have any Halloween plans this year? 
Uh, no, I really want to just stay home and watch like some campy Halloween movies. Like I, I don't like actual horror, but I really like funny movies that are kind of in a spooky setting. Like death <laughs> becomes her or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Chris and I are going to watch a movie about cults. What movie is it? I forget the name of it. Chris was like been wanting to watch it. It's about, it's fiction. It's not a documentary, but it's like um, this cult in somewhere in Scandinavia, like maybe Sweden. And I don't know. He made me watch the trailer and I was like, yeah, we can watch that on Halloween. So we're just going to put the candy out and also eat candy (laughs) and watch a movie about cults. That's awesome. Yeah, I anticipate some couch snuggles, some dog snuggles, and some movie time. It's still hot here, so it's really hard to get in the Halloween spirit when it's like 85 degrees outside. (laughs) Oh, and see here, there's snow on the ground, so like... (laughs) You skipped it. Yeah. What happened to fall? All of the kids have to like put coats on over their fierce costumes that they're like so excited about. That's how it was in Connecticut when I grew up. It was like you had this great costume and then you just had a parka over it. So all you could (laughs) see was like a sparkly skirt with like very thick tights. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Trick or treat. Trick or treat. (laughs) So we have some (laughs) Halloween themed questions that we asked our listeners here on this November 1st. (laughs) What's our first question? <laughs> the first question was name a piece too spooky to listen to after dark. Hmm, I think mine would probably be like Atmospheres by Liggety. Mm. You know that piece and it's mm. like all the I like think I've heard it before. Kubrick used it in some of his movies mm. and it's all like high strings like a microtone apart and they're all like and it's like oh my gosh I feel like I'm being scared (laughs) what about you (laughs) um mine would probably be like anything that the chronos quartet ever recorded and also (laughs) and like uh that um serenity what was it serenity for the victims of hiroshima for the victims of hiroshima which you know is kind of a very music history response but it's scary it's the same type of uh, the micro polyphony is the same type of thing that's in atmospheres. So we essentially have the same answer, just okay. different pieces. Okay, fantastic. No micro polyphony. <laughs> Scary. <laughs> so our listeners had some pretty fantastic responses to this. Um, Lacrimosa from Mozart's Requiem from Emily Mendez Obo. That's very haunting. That's a good one. Hiro says the Mozart oboe concerto, which is <laughs> maybe the personal relationship that it's uh, so they have scary. to this <laughs> It's like bum, 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 bum. <laughs> the horror, so the horror. E e e. Our second question. What's the longest you've played on a dead read? So this is kind of like a zombie read question. Um, 
My favorite response is from Cara Wolf. She said, I once pulled out a 10 year English horn read and played on that for band. <laughs> I think this is the winner. Yeah. yeah. I <laughs> but I have to uh, have uh, commiserate with uh, Amy Pollard, who said the entire pandemic, which, um, yes, I basically played on the same reads for <laughs> since March. Oh, my God. One of my students wrote in and said a semester. <laughs> Busted. I do not condone that response. Blew the whistle on themselves. <laughs> they did. Okay, so the next question is, what is the scariest piece to put on a recital? Well, probably the Barrio Sequenza, having played it, that was uh, pretty scary, not only in preparation, but also in execution. But I'm also kind of like a big high note baby. So maybe something with a high F like Boutry or Duteu, which mm -hmm. makes me like lose sleep and cry. High <laughs> notes. Meh. What about you? Oh, the Poulenc Sonata, like times a thousand. What? That, I that piece that is so scary. It's is it hard for you guys? So hard. Really? The second movement is so fast and hard. And the third movement, those pianissimo low B flats. It's oh, so I just think about the first movement, which I love and is so pretty. <sighs> <laughs> Uh, so our listener said, oh, Emily said, um, the Strauss concerto, which I'm not an oboist, but even I know that's a pretty scary mm -hmm. piece. You got to grow a third lung to mm -hmm. get that on there. Or just buy an oxygen tank, either one. There you go. Sean Carson says, obviously the Mozart, but the Previn Sonata is pretty spooky too. I have not played that yet and it's on my list. So maybe I'll delay that a little bit. <laughs> Abby says Tonsman Sonatine, and I have to agree that the last measure, actually, that's a super fun piece to play. And then the last measure, it's like you win it all or you lose it all. <laughs> it's the last thing anyone remembers. You could nail the rest. And then it's just like, oh, the high E didn't come out. Oh, thanks. Cool. It's a rude measure. <laughs> it's offensive. I don't like it. So our last question is, if you could cast a spell on your instrument, what would it be? Um, mine, which no one else came up with, and I am a little shocked, is it would practice itself. Yeah. So it'd be like those player pianos, but it would be a player bassoon. <laughs> and I'd just hold it. With ghost hands. Like ghost fingers. Wow, ghost thumbs. <laughs> How does she do it? How does she do it? Can women have it all? <laughs> Self-practicing bassoon. The answer is yes. <laughs> what about you? Uh, for me, it would be just a, the most gorgeous high E flat. Just a stress-free high E flat. And I can't, I can't decide between that and like for my oboe to never crack no matter what temperature it is. Oh, an oboe that lasts forever. So I'm guessing like I probably just need to get like a composite oboe that's not all wood. Because <laughs> that exists. Oh, y'all who instruments wear out. I don't know how you do it. I God bless. God bless. We got some amazing responses mm -hmm. to this question. 
Sarah says, for my bassoon to clean my apartment, a little reversal of Sorcerer's Apprentice. Ooh. That would be nice. But let's hope it doesn't get, like, wet in the mop water. That could ruin your instrument. Yeah. Um, Emily says, a spell that would allow me to always play in tune. I believe that's, that's called long tones, Emily. Uh, oh! <laughs> we got the spell. <laughs> Uh, Melissa says she would make her oboe always stay in adjustment, which I understand is a very credible wish. Anne Lemke says no water under pads ever under any circumstances ever. Yes, please. And thank you. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Uh, Heather says have the instrument learn all my scales for me. Emily Mendez says to make any read sound good. That's a great spell. Yeah. That's a pretty darn good spell because then you don't mm -hmm. have to like, oh, oh. I feel like Dylan is shooting low here to swab itself. <laughs> the swabbing is not the hard part, Dylan. <laughs> it's true in terms of like the grand scheme of wishes or spells, I guess. Well, I hope everyone had an awesome Halloween and did the monster mash and ate all the candy and yeah. watched all the scary movies and stayed safe and healthy. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. We are pleased as punch to welcome to Double Read Dish, Albie Miklish, professor of bassoon at Arizona State University. Hello. I'm thrilled to be here. We're delighted to have you. We start all of our interviews with asking you how you came to start your instrument. So can you tell us how you began playing the bassoon? Sure. So I'm from a tiny rural town in Pennsylvania, and we only had a band and, and chorus. Um, and I have a sister who's two years older than me, and she started the flute in fifth grade. And I was just so jealous and upset that I couldn't start an instrument when she did. And so for two years, I couldn't wait to start an instrument. And so in fifth grade, I chose the saxophone. And I loved it. I loved band. I loved practicing. I loved the rehearsals. I loved everything about it. But I didn't like the saxophone. Um, and I knew really from an early age that I wanted to do something with music. Like I, that was going to be my life but I didn't have my voice. And so I tried all the other woodwind instruments and now it's um, 10th grade, I'm 16. And my band director said, you know, there's one more instrument, there's a bassoon. And I didn't even know what a bassoon was. 
Um, and so I, it was my great epiphany in my life is he took me to the basement in the school, handed me this case and I opened it up and I, I fell in love with the bassoon before I even knew how to put it together or play it. And um, I was self-taught. I didn't even know how to read bass clef, um, but I, I just fell in love with the bassoon. And so it was um, love at first sight. It really was. <laughs> and so will you talk us through deciding that you wanted to be a professional bassoonist and pursuing your educational training, kind of walk us through that journey and how you made the decisions to of which schools you wanted to audition for and ultimately pursue? Yeah, so I thought I was going to be a, a high school band director. And so that was the path I was going to take. And again, I had you know no training and I auditioned at one school. Um, it was Indiana University of Pennsylvania, which was about two and a half hours from my hometown. So that was a good distance for my, my family, my parents and myself. Um, and I went off to be a high school band director. And I loved it. I had an amazing undergrad teacher, Dr. David Borst, who gave me, I can't believe he accepted me because I was a disaster. Wrong fingerings. I, I think I probably was still playing on a fiber cane reed. Um, but he accepted me and I just, I loved it. And cut to, you know, four and a half years later, I'm student teaching. And I thought, I, I don't think I can do this. I, I remember going to him, Dr. Bohr saying, I don't think I can do this. Like, this is not the right career path. I don't know what I'm going to do. I was really stressing. And he said, you're going to audition to do your master's um, in performance. And he gave me a list of five schools and said, this is where you're going to audition. And, you know, I didn't know how I stacked up with anybody. And I looked at this list and I thought he was off his rocker. I thought he was crazy. So I went and auditioned. I thought, hey, I'll take a, I'll take a trip to New York City. What the heck? My parents said they would pay. Um, and so uh, I, I, I went to, I went off to Juilliard for uh, my master's. And, you know, I, I was doing a lot of freelance work in Pittsburgh at the time that I um, had auditioned. And I got home one night from a late gig and there was a, a message on my phone answering machine saying, you know, this is Joe Green, I think was his name, from the Juilliard School, give us a call. And I was depressed. I thought, oh my gosh, they don't even send rejection letters. It's a rejection phone call. And so I, I didn't <laughs> sleep all night. I was so depressed. And the next morning, I wasn't even going to call. And I called up and I said, um, this is Alvin Micklish. I'm calling to talk to Joe Green and they patched me through. And he knew who I was. He's like, oh, you know, Albie, and he said, you know, the, the bassoon faculty, they're, they're very, they, you know, are happy with your audition. They really want you to come to Juilliard. And I, I was convinced my friends were playing a joke on me. Like, I really thought somebody has a New York City area code and they're playing a joke. And I'm like, really? I mean, I just did not believe it. So I went off to Juilliard um, and I did a master's and a performance or artistic um, diploma at Juilliard and I studied with David Carroll who was incredible. I have a good story about that. Um, and you know while I was at Juilliard it was just the most amazing experience living in the city, the, the orchestra, freelancing, and the longer I was there I just thought I don't think the orchestral career is for me. Like I couldn't see myself being happy 20 or 30 years in an orchestra. Just I love programming and picking what I'm going to play and picking who I want to play with. And 
to me, that just wasn't there. So now I'm stressing again, what am I going to do? And at, um, as I was getting ready to leave New York City, after three years, my undergrad teacher, Dr. Boris called and said, I'm taking a sabbatical. I'm going to be gone. I want you to fill in for me at my undergraduate, Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And I thought, oh, here's teaching again. But I took it. I didn't have a job. Of course, I'm going to take it. And within the first week of teaching, I knew this is what I'm supposed to do. Like, this is, this is what I'm supposed to do. I mean, I love teaching. And it's that, that level and experienced players. And, you know, we can't deal with the parents. And so I fell in love with teaching at the, co the college level. And uh, it ended up being a year position. And as I was finishing up, the director of the department called me into his office and said, seems like you like it, the students like you, what are your thoughts? And I said, this is what I want to do. And he said, it was at the time, this was 1996. And so you still kind of had to have the doctorates, you didn't have to, it was that transition of, you know, now it's almost required. Mm -hmm. And so he said, you should go right off and get your doctorate. And I never had aspirations of getting a doctorate, um, but I thought this is what I want to do. I got to do it. So, you know, internet was new. I was emailing teachers. I emailed Barry Steves, who was teaching at Michigan State. And I just knew, I was like, this is the guy for me. And so I did my DMA at Michigan State with um, Barry Steves. And my first semester, he was on sabbatical and I filled in for him. And so I was the bassoon instructor my first semester. And again, it just reconfirmed that this is what I want to do. So that's how I got to where I am today. I have a couple follow-ups before we continue on in your story. The first that, you know, you describe yourself as being self-taught and having kind of those self-taught fingering. My first private lesson was my first week of undergrad. So I know the, mm -hmm. you know, what the E flat probably looked like and the, <laughs> yes. you know, that type of stuff. Um, and then this four and a half short years later to enter into one of the most esteemed conservatories in the nation, I would anticipate that you had, you know, quite a high level of focus once you got into your undergraduate environment. I'd love to know kind of what that experience of flipping into that level of intensity was like? Yeah, so IUP, they didn't have, you couldn't double major. And so I basically was doing the performance degree as well. So I was taking extra lessons. I was playing in a lot of ensembles. And so in addition to all the coursework of music ed, I just immersed myself in, in bassoon. And um, my, my mom tells a story of when I was in high school that, I mean, they'd have to tell me to quit practicing. Like, you know, your sister's in bed, your brother's in bed, quit practicing. and I, I just, I love to practice. And so, um, I don't know, I just felt getting to IUP, it was, I was meant to be there with musicians and it was a whole new level at, you know, Juilliard being immersed in, in that. I've never been around that energy and people that all they want to do, live, breathe and die making music. You mentioned you had a great story about David Carroll, and I'm a big fan of the original bubonic bassoon quartet. So <laughs> I would love to hear about your experiences being a student of him. 
Yeah, so I was, I was doing freelancing in, in Pittsburgh. And in fact, Carnegie Mellon hired me to play in all of their ensembles. They needed a bassoon. So I was, you know, at, down at Carnegie Mellon a lot. And I thought, you know, I need to study with Nancy Gorris. I'm here. So I took a couple lessons with her, which um, I, I instantly just really admired her and great player. And um, I still remember the few lessons I had with her, exactly what she said. I learned so much in such a short time. And, and I told her, you know, what, where I was auditioning and she said, you know, if you, if, if you get into Juilliard, um, you have to study with David Carroll. And I didn't know who anybody was. This is before internet. So, I mean, I knew who Judy LeClaire was because she was the only female. And so I get to the Juilliard audition. And again, I don't know who all these gentlemen are. Um, and I, I play the Mozart concerto and I do my cadenza and this big tall man who's Frank Morelli pops up and is standing behind me and said, can you play that cadenza again? And you know, if, if you know Frank Morelli, and we all do, he's, he's intimidating. I mean, in size and in grandeur. And um, so I thought, oh my gosh, what, what am I doing wrong? And so I played it again and he's like, where did you get this? And I said, well, my teacher just gave the cadenza and I just, you know, I doctored it up. And he said, can you send me this? And I said, yeah, I'll send you it. And then I thought afterwards, like, if he, if this is a good cadenza, I'm not, why am I going to give this away? So I never sent it to him. Um, <laughs> and so, and again, I didn't know who he, he, who he was, but, you know, Nancy said, I have to study with David Carroll. So I checked the box that I wanted to study with David Carroll. And years later, I was flying into Pittsburgh. I was flying home. My mom picked me up. David Carroll and his wife, Jeannie Backstresser, former principal flute of the New York Phil, they now moved to Pittsburgh. So um, they had me and my mom over for brunch and they had beautiful gardens at their house and David was showing my mom his gardens. And I was walking with Jeannie and you know, I was told my whole life, don't eavesdrop. But I was eavesdropping, I was listening to David Carroll. And it, it really is the most touching story and he said, he was telling my mom, he said, you know, for Albie's audition, you know, in came this kid from IUP. We didn't know where that, that was. We were not very hopeful for this guy. And he said, you know, he left the room and we all wanted him. Like everybody's like, oh my gosh, we want this kid. And he goes, and I looked down and he checked my name and wanted to study with me. And he said to my mom, he goes, and I just felt so lucky that I got to teach this kid. And I, I just get goosebumps by that because here I'm this little schmuck from nowhere, Pennsylvania, and just, you know, like knowing that, you know, he was excited about that. So that, that's kind of my Juilliard story. That is incredible. That makes me want to cry. I love that so much. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm so glad I heard that story. I really am. And I have pictures in my office right behind me of, of, of that, that brunch that we had of him and Jeannie. So it's, it was a very nice time. It's those moments that live with you forever. And mm -hmm. you don't, you may not know when they're coming and you may not know when you're in one, but they're yeah. really important. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like from the very beginning, you were intrinsically motivated student bassoonist and you loved to practice and mm -hmm. um you know as teachers we have experiences with students who are intrinsically motive motivated and externally motivated and um i wonder if 
your perspective has um, affected the way that you teach. Do you find that that motivation, that inner motivation is contagious and that your students take it on too? Or do you find that you have to um, reach elsewhere to motivate some of the other ones too? Yeah, there's definitely both of that. And, you know, when I got to Juilliard is, you know, my undergrad, I didn't know how to practice. I just went to the practice room and I practiced. And um, David Carroll just said, you know, as you get older, you have less and less time to practice. So I'm going to teach you how to be efficient. And he assigned me so much music a week. And he said to me, my first lesson, he said, you will take one day off from the bassoon every week. He's like, and I'm going to ask you what day it was and what you did. And so I had six days to get all this music done. And he really would say, um, you know, practice, you know, three, three lines a day. You have 20 minutes, you know, make it work. So it, it really made me focus. Like, okay, I've got, I, 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 you know, I would look at an etude and it's 20 lines of music and I have to have it perfected next week, how to break that down. And, um, and I kept a journal and he wanted to see my journal of how I practiced. And um, so I do that with my students from their first lesson as a freshman is, this is what I expect next week. How are we gonna get this done? And I really break it up. And basically is, I, I feel that with my own practicing is every day, if it's a new piece, I want something in the can where even if it's a measure, like something of that piece is done and I can pretty much put it away. Um, or it, it's wood shedded. And I, I do that with students. And I think that kind of helps, I don't know if it helps motivate them, but I think it helps them get through the music. And, you know, cause as we know, if you practice a whole etude, you know, like it's 20 minutes, what do you remember? But if you practice one line for 20 minutes, you remember a lot, you might even have it memorized. So I try to put short-term goals with them. and. And in, in, in that taking a day off from the bassoon, I still do that. Like I still like take time off the bassoon. I think that is super, super healthy. It was very healthy for me at Juilliard to have a day where I don't think the bassoon. Does that help with burnout? It helps me with burnout, yeah. <laughs> I My whole life, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I almost always take summers off. You know, I'll do IDRS or like a, a summer, but I really, uh, I, I need time away from what I do. And so summers, summer for me, I always make sure I have good reads, you know, at the end of the summer. So when I come back, you know, a month or two later is I know I have good reads. And honestly, it's, um, I think it's really easy to come back to the Zoom. I feel like by the end of an hour or two, I don't, I don't feel like I've taken any time off at all. I can't play as long, but otherwise everything's there. Yeah, I think that's really good and important to talk about like you said, oh, maybe I shouldn't say it out loud. Like, I feel like we don't, we're not honest enough yeah. about the time off that we do take. Like, you know, we feel like we have to put on these airs and in, you know, the time of coronavirus and quarantine, there, there have been times that I've lacked inspiration and just have found myself not practicing for more significant periods of time than I would ever typically admit. And then I'll mm -hmm. have a colleague or a friend mention like, oh gosh, you know, I took all of April off or, oh man, I've, I've been struggling. I haven't really been practicing during this time. And it was so like affirming to me mm -hmm. to hear like, oh my God, it's almost like permission of like, oh, 
I'm allowed, I'm allowed to have an ebb and flow relationship. And, mm -hmm. you know, of course there's a professionalism of being prepared, but there's also like acknowledging our humanity and not just like this perfect robotic, I am always my best self and that there's never a case <laughs> where that's not. And so even just saying like, as, a, as an established professional, you have a healthy relationship where you will take the summers to be a human is mm -hmm. I think really important to say, you know? Well, and you know, so my, um, it was my partner of 18 years. We actually got married this summer. So it's weird to say my husband, but my husband. Um, Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was really, you know, it was the time was right. Um, <laughs> but we've always lived for, for 14 years of this 18 years, we lived apart. And so, um, and so I always, you know, for 14 years, this is my 15th year, um, have been at Arizona and we had a house, our primary house in Phoenix, but he would be, we had a place in California where he worked and lived. And then it was Connecticut and Maine and New York city. And so, you know, the summers were the only time we could be a real family with the dogs and all be together. And so it was just natural, um, you know, in, in my professional teaching is I just I just wanted to chill and be with him and do fun things and not have to soon be part of that so um it was it was nice that way too yeah I'm so inspired hearing that because I uh there was a period a 14 month period where my wife worked in Michigan and I worked in Mississippi and it mm -hmm. was a really hard time <laughs> So the fact that you have done it for 14 out of 18 years, mm -hmm. that's, that's, you're so strong. <laughs> well, and you know, and, and I think part of it was, I mean, it was really healthy too, because it made me with, with my job um, is, you know, when, when I would be with him at the weekend or when he came out to, to Phoenix for the weekend is we just job, we didn't do any job. It was, we just spent time together. And so is, you know, I just, um, did, the bassoon didn't exist that weekend. And, you know, the thing is you can do that if you plan properly and you build that in. So, and I would know, uh, you know, like, okay, so Greg's coming into town this week. And so I got to really get my button gear and get everything ready so I can take the weekend off. And again, that goes back to David Carroll at Juilliard, just, you got six days to get all this done. And I, I want to know what you did on your day off. <laughs> so it just, it, it, it takes, it takes planning is what it does. And if anybody who is listening out there knows Albie Micklish, you know, my middle name is planner. So, you know, I, I'm good at planning. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is fantastic. And I love the idea of planning for a break because so often, like Jackie said, you know, we feel guilt and shame mm -hmm. for taking a break. And maybe if, Speaking for myself, maybe if I planned for a break, then I wouldn't have to take a deep dive into that emotional spiral. <laughs> yeah, I had a teacher who called it the beckoning piano. And that, uh, there was always just this voice on her yeah. shoulder saying, you should be, you could be, you should be, you know, yeah. all of this type of thing. So, yeah. But instead, get real and just do it or don't do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to back up a little bit, actually, and go back to um, when you were um, graduating from Michigan State and embarking on your career in higher education. And mm -hmm. I'd love for you to talk us through how you ended up at 
one of the largest schools of music in the country. So I was at Michigan State and I did two years on campus and then I applied for University of Missouri Columbia and I, I got that job. That was my first audition uh, interview and I, I got that and um, I wasn't finished at Michigan State and they wrote Mizzou wrote into my contract that I had to be completely done by August 1st of the next year. Um, so University of Missouri was my first not sabbatical job and I had to finish do my comprehensive exams and my DMA document. And so it was extremely stressful year because I knew I didn't have a job if I didn't finish the DMA. And so I don't recommend that for anybody. Um, I, I probably wouldn't do that again. Um, but so I, I love Mizzou. Um, I felt um, I wasn't quite the right fit for that, that university. And two years later, the University of Nebraska opened up and I um, went to that interview and I just loved it. I just thought, oh, you know, it was in a, a bigger city and the universities, you know, in the downtown and, you know, coming from a small town, I, I just like the energy of a bigger city. And I thought, mm -hmm. I, I like Lincoln, Nebraska a lot. Um, and I was very, very, very happy there. I met my partner, Greg, there. He was at Creighton University. Um, and so we thought we probably aren't going to live in, in Nebraska our whole lives. And so I remember it was a spring break um, and we talked about where, like he would have to follow me, which, you know, has taken 14 years or 18 years and now he actually lives in Arizona full time. Um, follow me and where do we want that to be? And as you know, most, a lot of the listeners know, the, the big schools and in, in the big or the, the schools in the big cities, a lot of it is adjunct teachers. And I, I knew I had a handful of, of um, universities that I could teach at and be in a big city. And I, I had a friend um, who was from the desert and visited him in Tucson. And first time I came out to the Southwest, I just fell in love. I felt like I should have been born a desert rat. I loved it. And I said to Greg, I said, you know, the one job that I want is Arizona State University. I said, it is big city. It's the desert. It's our only shot to live in the desert in a big city. And literally three days later, the job posted. Stop. Yeah, no, I, it's a true story. And I wasn't even looking. I was very happy at Nebraska, but I thought, well, I guess, you know, we need to start looking at, you know, where we want to, you know, live and retire. And, you know, Jeff Lyman was, was leaving the, the school, went to Michigan, and I, I didn't have my resume or anything ready. And I just said to, I called Greg and I said, listen, we, this is it. And he's like, okay, we gotta, we gotta get this job. And um, yeah, I mean, I still pinch myself. I can't believe I'm here. And um, I, I just, you know, I'm so happy at Arizona State. I mean, it's a great school of music and colleagues and I, you know, the desert's not for everybody. You know, it's, we've had over almost 40 days of 110 degrees this summer. It's not for everybody, but man, come out in the winter and, you know, it's pretty hard not to love Phoenix in the winter or Tempe in the winter. And so that's how I ended up at Arizona State. First of all, I would like to say how much I love that you that you said that your partner said we have to get that job. I was gonna say Greg sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was a team effort, and I mean, 
and the negotiating, he's like, okay, this is what you're going to do to negotiate. And so, and I exceeded, you know, I exceeded like, and, and he's, he's the, the money finance guy in this relationship. I can't even spell finance. And, you know, so I, I exceeded his expectations. So that, you know, I was really oh. happy about that. Good job, Greg. Yeah. I mean, I just applied for tenure at my university and that was definitely a team effort. Oh, <laughs> it takes absolutely. A <laughs> absolutely. It's so nice when you get that in, right? Like it's just a huge relief when you get that, your dossier and everything yeah. submitted. <laughs> so on the flip side of getting the job, mm -hmm. um, you seem to be extremely successful at winning higher ed positions and i'm sure that you are experienced on the other end mm -hmm. of the you know the committee side where you are looking to hire somebody so i would love to hear your per perspective of what you look for in a candidate and what makes somebody stand out in your mind yeah and you know i i i shouldn't say this because if my boss hears it i could be in trouble but i love being on search committees and so <laughs> I do. I love, I was on, um, you know, a, a music theory search committee last year and I, you know, I'm not a theory person at all, but I, I love reading their research and I, I love talking to them on the phone and getting to know them. Um, and, and, and so what I look for is, well, first of all, you know, for those looking for higher ed job is the application itself is, you know, only submit what they want. If they aren't calling for recordings, don't submit recordings. Like you have to show that you can follow the rules and follow instructions. I mean, it's, you have to show from your application, you're gonna be a good colleague and you know, give us what we want. And so I really, I'm the stickler for that. Like, oh, well, this person didn't submit this or they missed it by three days. I, so I, I'm the stickler with that. Cause I feel that's gonna, that is reflective once you're on campus and have the job, that, that's reflective of who you, know, you really, really are. Um, mm -hmm. But again, for the, the younger folks out there that want to go into university, and as you both know, is university interview is hard. I mean, you, you show up and you are on the minute somebody picks you up at the airport until the minute they put you on that plane. I mean, you have to be on for days. And it's, you know, the, the search committee interview and it's lunch and dinner and breakfast and it's the, the recital and the teaching. And I, d I had to do a theory class once. And so it, it's a lot of work. And, you know, with, with being on search committees is, you know, there's never anybody that is number one in absolutely everything. I mean, so this person rises to top here and this person there. And so it's, it really comes down to who's a good fit for the university. Like who's, mm -hmm. who's gonna be, you know, the, the best overall candidate. And for performance jobs is, um, you know, it, it really comes down, a lot of it is the recital. Like the make or the break is the recital. I mean, they need to know that you can play, but you also have to have a good interview and good, um, uh, good teaching. And I, I mean, if, 
I remember going to the director of the School of Music at Michigan State when I had the Mizzou job and said, can you ask me questions? And he was throwing questions out. I didn't have any idea how to answer. Like, what, what are your recruiting strategies? I'm like, recruiting strategies? I don't know. I, I'm a college kid. And so, you know, have people sit down. And I think now colleges, I know at ASU, we do a much better job getting our DMA students ready for interviews, but I didn't have any of that. Yeah, to kind of piggyback off that, one thing I was curious about is, um, you know, you have a large and I would assume diverse studio that mm -hmm. spans undergraduates and masters and doctorate and pedagogically, how do you approach, um, you know, being able to make your teaching really relevant to all of those different levels and then also common time like studio class or, or read class and finding a common ground between such a large diverse group? Yeah, well, that's what I, I love is that I do have undergrad, masters and doctorate and it, it's pretty much a 50-50 split. And so what I love is, you know, my freshmen are hearing the DMA students playing, you know, our hardest rep. And like they have, they always have aspirational peers, you know, in the studio. Um, and as far as the DMA in, in studio is we do peer teaching. So then my graduate students are now teaching the undergrads, you know, the beginning reps. And, and in those classes is we're not, as, as the, the, the studio members, we're not evaluating the performer, we're evaluating the teacher. And much like we do for college jobs. And so, you know, and I'll just say to the student, like, listen, you, you've got, you have 15 minutes with a student when you interview for a job, you, when they play, you gotta, you gotta know, like, you gotta make a difference. Like, where are your magic tricks? Like, you gotta make a big difference. So when that student stops playing, what can you fix and what can the committee fix? And so I think that's really good for everybody, for the undergrads to be working with the grad students and getting feedback from me. Um, as far as reads go, I pushed for about 12 years at Arizona State to get real classes. Because as you know, we do all this work and don't get any credit and the students don't get credit and you know their their lesson grade suffers because they don't have a good read and it's so i wanted you know your your lesson is your lesson your read is your read grade and so i pushed and i finally have actual classes the students have to take they have to everybody has to take a minimum two semesters of read class um, then we take reads completely out of the lesson and it's it's a class, and it's it's grouped with freshmen, and then I teach undergrad, and then grad, um, and so everybody's on different levels. And even with the grad students, is you know I teach them the Alby Micklish style, but if they're happy with their reads, and I'm happy with their reads, is they don't have to their reads don't have to look like mine, but they have to be able to do everything they need to do. They need good tone, good pitch, good uh, articulation. Um, but, you know, undergrads is, you know, their, their reads have to, to look like mine and I have a read rubric of like 26 steps, you know, so when they submit a blank, if one step is wrong, that blank, I keep the blank and they get zero points. So I, I teach consistency from day one with read making. And, um, and they know I've got a whole thing here. I could show you all this, this jar of read blanks I have and sometimes the wires um, you know a millimeter in the wrong place I keep the blank they get zero points so they learn very quickly you know 
how to be consistent with reads because we don't have extra time. We don't, we don't have extra time to fool around with making reads. You are giving me ideas. <laughs> so the read class is actually a part of their degree plan. Yeah, so it's even the under, the, the music ed majors have, I think, four free credits of elective. So they have to do two, uh, I require two um, read making classes and they're each one credit. So two of those electives I take and then they can, you know, have fun with, with two other. Awesome. Yeah, that is mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah, and it's, 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 it's great. It really, and again, then it's just, they have a read grade and a lesson grade. Because, you know, I, I always, you know, a student comes in prepared and you know they know their stuff, but their read or their best read crack and they don't have anything. And now I'm penalizing the lesson grade because, you know, their, their best read crack. Well, we've all had that happen. So, yeah, it works really well. I'm really happy about that. This uh, line of work, whether it's teaching or performing, can suck up all of your time. And I know that you mentioned that you take time off regularly, but we are in such a strange new world now with online everything mm -hmm. that it seems to seep into all aspects of our lives and every hour of our day. So I would love to hear your perspective on um, time management and work-life balance. Yeah, you know, so I talked a little bit about, you know, having living in separate homes for 14 of 18 years. And so it goes back to planning again. And, you know, we we've always had dogs. And so um, I, I schedule block times at ASU. And when I don't have to be at ASU, I am home, you know, feeding the dogs, letting the dogs out. And so my students know when I'm going to be on campus and when I'm not. And if when I'm not and I live, you know, it's a half hour. It's not far, but with traffic it's a half hour so they know like if if they need me they, they've got hours when i'm available and other times when i'm not available um and so so that's part of the work balance um also again i'm a planner um i i take a lot of time for physical and mental health and so um my entire life i've been a morning person i get up i was up today at 4 30 to go running oh and so well in phoenix you kind of have to in the summer <laughs> um and so i i you know, either in running or not now in the pandemic either running or at the gym first thing in the morning and then i get home and get ready for school and you know then i'm, I'm done with physical activity for the day and, and then it then it's bassoon but when i leave campus you know then it's it's i'm done i'm done for the day like the job is the job is over. I do all my practicing at home. Um, but as far as, um, yeah, when, once I leave campus is ASU teaching is done for the day. So boundaries. Yeah, well, absolutely. And you know, sometimes the students, I mean, they may need something. And so I'll say, you, you can come to me, you can come to my house and I'll help you out. And it may mean they have to Uber or they have to take the light rail and it takes them an hour for public transportation to get to my house. And I'm, I, I will give my students as much time as they want and need, um, but it may mean they have, to, they have to put the effort to come to me because I'm, you know, I'm no longer in, in the office. I love that. Yeah, this family is definitely a pro-dog family. So <laughs> you're, yeah. Well, and that's, that's, it's great having a dog because I can just say, 
sorry, I can't teach you. I have to be home for the dogs. And I mean, you do, you know it, you, you've got to be home for the dogs. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a choice. So this is, this is when I'm in my office. Like if you need to borrow read equipment, this is when you do it. <laughs> you have a very um, rich resume of recording projects, especially your um, 2017 release, Contando. And I'd love to hear about your experiences in recording and um, selecting repertoire and what uh, projects appeal to you and why and that type of thing. Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> the dirty secret is it is my least favorite thing on the planet to record. I just, I, I just, um, I, I don't like editing. I don't like the whole process. And so what my, my philosophy is, I, I really approach recording um, is, as a live performance. So when I walk into the recording studio is, I know the piece as good as it's going to be. I try to just run it two or three times and that's it. And we piece it together. Um, I can't do the measure by measure by measure. Like I, to me, it, it's no longer a recording, it's, it's a puzzle. And so I really, you know, uh, on, on that CD, the, the Steinmetz Sonata, I think every movement was just from two takes. I mean, it was just run it once, run it again, that's it. Um, so I, I try to be really prepared for recording um, so that I don't have to be in there all day. As far as rep, you know, I, I just, I try to bring new rep, rep that I love, obviously, and just new rep that people aren't familiar with. Um, and, and just, you know, fun things, uh, stuff that, you know, that everybody in the studio can play something from that latest CD. So there's always, and even recitals that I program is there's everybody in my studio can play something on my recital. I never do this crazy hard recital because then, you know, the, the undergrads, what if they, they, you know, they, they can't pick a piece and say, oh, I want to do the butchery on my junior recital because they probably aren't going to be able to do the butchery on their junior recital. Right. Would you share with us a favorite memory of a past performance? Yeah. So when I was at Juilliard, they, um, they had a concerto competition. And the way it works is it, it rotates. So every X amount of years is the bassoon competition. And my last year, it was the bassoon competition. And it was, they picked the concerto. It was Ellen Zwillick's bassoon concerto. And mm -hmm. I think Nancy was the only one that had played it. So I think I might've been the, the second performer, maybe the, it might've been the third. And um, so I, you know, I, I, I auditioned for that and I won it and it was in Avery Fisher Hall. And, you know, Ellen Zwillick was in the audience and John Corleano was in the audience. And, and you know, I was, I was in the dressing rooms that the, you know, the biggest, um, soloists in the world are in and there was an elevator that took me right down to the stage and I had a person to get me there and food in the dressing room and I, and I felt like a you know a bassoon celebrity for 15 minutes <laughs> and that um, th that performance I mean just walking out on Avery Fisher Hall um, and playing Ellen Zwillick's concerto with Ellen um, Zwillick in the audience and you know David Carroll got me into the hall Avery Fisher to try it out. He like was sneaking me in. He knew when there was a half hour block. And I remember he's sneaking me in and um, Michiko Ichida, the great Japanese pianist, was playing a concerto and she was trying out all the Steinways and she saw us 
and she knew David from the symphony and he just said, oh, my student won a concerto. He was nervous. He wanted to try out the hall. And she was so gracious. She closed up the pianos and moved them off the stage. And she sat out in the audience and like listened. And she was helping me pick my read and all of that. But yeah, that performance stands out over anything. So, and so many of my friends and family came and, you know, they'd never been to New York City, some of them, and now they're in Avery Fisher Hall. So it was a great, a great performance. I mean, it was a, a great memory. I don't know if it was a great performance, but it was a <laughs> great memory. <laughs> um, I'd love to hear a bit about your read making process and, and set up from the nitty gritty of like, you know, the dorky stuff, like what shape you use and, and your process a little bit. And then also like maybe read making habits or routines and general advice for how you approach that. Yeah, again, it, it was, you know, so I learned reads with my undergrad um, bassoon professor, Dr. Borscht, and it was his style and he was, he was great, but he would, you know, he would always finish my read, like take it and, you know, turn away and fix it. And so I never, I got to Juilliard and couldn't really finish a read. And, um, David Carroll was, he, he was just, again, said, we don't have extra time for read. So we're going to be, you know, super um, consistent. So he taught me consistency. And so I, I start with gouged cane and um, I get it from um, Bill Woodward. I love Madeir cane and, um, and he hardness tests his cane. So you, you don't throw away a whole lot of cane with, if you get it from custom cane. And I have hardness testers here. And so basically if once I have that piece of cane and I'm committing to make a blank is I am convinced it's going to be a good read because I know how hard it is. I have a flex tester, so I know the flexibility. And um, I use the Fox one and a two shape, which I then narrow. I play on skinny little reads. Um, and, but it, it's all about consistency and honestly, out of 10 blanks, unless I do I, I split it or do something um, awful with my scraping is eight of those blanks are going to be played in public in some form. And it's, it's really all about consistency is, um, and I mark, I use a, a wood burner on all my reads, what the cane is, when I made the blank, how hard, what the flexibility is. But I don't, it, the thing is, I, I hate making reads. I, I loathe it. I, I, I don't like anything like the fine motor skills with your hands. I just don't like that. Um, and so when I make a blank is it's, it's going to be a good read because it's consistent and I know exactly what it should be. What is your advice to young people who aspire to have a career like yours? Practice, practice. It, you have to, well, you guys know your, your colleagues, um, like my colleagues, I, I just feel, you know, the people at ASU and my wind colleagues in string and uh, all the performances, uh, you know, I didn't go to school with any of them, but I feel they were probably near the top in their studios at their schools. And that's, that's the level for college teaching. I mean, you, I mean, the, the competition is fierce now. I mean, it's really fierce. You've got to be really dedicated. I feel at some point in your life, you have to live, breathe and die your instrument. And mine was, well, undergrad through Juilliard, like I just, I practiced all the time. Um, but yeah, you have to really, you have to be dedicated and have passion. I mean, if you think like, oh, maybe I want to be a college professor, you don't want to be. I mean, you've got to have the drive and passion 
and, and want to do it. Albie, this was such a wonderful conversation. We gained so much from your stories and your perspective, and we're so thrilled that you took the time to speak with us and our listeners on Double Read Dish. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, this has been such a joy. I, I, I love the podcast, and I'm just so glad you um, contacted me. Team Greg. (laughs) 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 We hope you enjoyed that spooky spooky episode of Double Reach (laughs) and that you'll follow us please on social media and that you also won't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and uh, that you will make sure to turn in for the next episode. Galit, who is that going to feature? Our next episode features an incredible talk with Titus Underwood, Principal Oboe of the Nashville Symphony Orchestra. Jackie, we got to end this nerd parade. Go McCree! <laughs>